This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. Since 2020, my guest has become one of the most talked about MPs in the Labour Party. Born in Norfolk, she moved to South East London, where at school she described herself as not a model pupil in any way. She left school at age 16 to take up an administration apprenticeship at Guy's Hospital before going on into further education. She moved to Canterbury in 1998 and worked as a teaching assistant, but always had a passion for writing political satire. In 2017, she ran to be a Labour MP in Canterbury, a historic win which overturned 99 years of Conservative representation. As an MP, she has become a key figure in the transgender debate in Parliament, saying that only women have a cervix. My guest has since refused to back down on this stance. She said, trans rights are the same rights as everyone else, but what concerns me is that there is a slight conflict in some cases between trans rights and women's rights. Women's rights are why I came to Parliament and why I'm sitting here, because women are now visible in Parliament. My guest today is Rosie Duffield. Rosie, thank you very much for coming to The Spectator today. Thank you for having me. Um, you just had a tour of the offices. Mm, so yeah. It's lovely here. What a great old building. Any interior ideas? Um, I just think it's fab and I wish I lived in a place this grand, but I don't, unfortunately. We'll find you a sofa bed. Okay. Um, now, on this podcast, we tend to begin by asking, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Yeah, I think on the whole, childhoods are always weird. I remember being desperate to be grown up and be an adult. I think I thought I was in my mind and didn't want to to have to go to school and do childish things, which sounds really mad, actually, and nuts. I don't know what was wrong with me. But um, um, What type of adult things did you want to do? I don't know. I, just, I, want, I was so obsessed with things like current affairs and politics, but I couldn't vote or anything like that. I mean, I used to watch the news obsessively with my dad, and my parents did talk about current affairs and things, but I was really probably overly interested in things like that and I think living in London and my dad was a policeman in the middle of London those current affairs were kind of part of our everyday life so I remember things like the Yorkshire Ripper trial and there's a clip that was shown quite often on the news my dad was standing on the steps of the old Bailey and things like that and he was obviously very involved with the miners strike and and all those things that we would hear about on the news they were kind of connected to our lives, like the IRA threat and things. And, uh, yeah, so I, I guess I was just always really into that. And I, I think I found school a bit... I just didn't really feel I fitted in to school. In terms of at home, my parents made a huge effort to take us on holidays and to do things like going to the theatre and museums. We didn't have a huge amount of money, but they really made a lot of effort to do that. And I think partly because they were only 21 years older than me, I felt like it was quite a fun household to grow up in, I think. And you referenced your father there. Now, he was an anti-terrorist police officer. Well, yeah, he was a policeman, but, but he got involved... In all the City of London police were you know, de facto involved with anti-terrorism stuff. And at one point he drove one of the vans which would kind of stop on the bridges and, and we had a sort of lockdown situation in London a few times round the square mile because there was a bombing campaign and I was working for the police when he was doing that. So I was in the control room knowing that he was operating one of the vans with a load of bomb squad people. So that was a quite dramatic few years. 
Mm. And do you think that made you more aware of current affairs or it would have happened yeah. anyway? No, I think it did because they made sense to me and they I understood them and we talked about them a lot. Whereas I guess a lot of people, particularly maybe out of London, didn't have that connection. But everything happened in London. I remember the graffiti on the sort of bridges and the railway stations about Maggie Thatcher and things. And I would always ask questions about that. And did you start to feel political yourself? Yeah, I think at an early age. I didn't necessarily feel that I had to agree with my parents because they weren't ramming any views down my throat, but we did. it was a discussion. And I thought an awful lot about those things and where my mind would be at where it would settle and I was just fascinated by it all. And where were your parents leaning politically? Um, I think probably certainly kind of liberal, lefty, but they were very young when Mrs Thatcher came in and I think a lot of people thought that was a new start and a new beginning. I think everyone got swept up in that and I'm not saying that they did, but I think yeah, they were only in their late 20s when that happened and I was only sort of eight or, or so, but it was a really fascinating time politically, wasn't it? Yeah. We had the Falklands War and things like that and it felt like there were these huge news stories all the time and I guess the fact that we didn't have social media meant that we watched the news when it was on and everyone did and read the newspapers and things. Now, you mentioned your time at school. Um, mm. You said, I uh, mentioned the introduction that you, uh, you're not identifying today as a model pupil. <laughs> not at all. No, I was <laughs> <And> terrible. <laughs> you'll spend a lot of school time in detention. Were you actively misbehaving? You were just not doing what you're told to do. I'm going to be a bit kind to sort of child Rosie because um, I didn't know, nobody knew that I had ADHD. And I didn't know until I was 40, oh God, probably about 47, 48 maybe, because my eldest son got diagnosed at uni and it was like a light bulb going off. Everyone went, for God's sake, of course you're ADHD. I'm like, well, really? And um, my partner did one of those you know, um, he had a psychiatrist on the screen and did all this assessment and stuff, and my score was higher than his. I'm like, oh, God, OK, I can't, I can't ignore this anymore. So in terms of school, it meant that I was always, I mean, I still am, but incredibly disorganised. So things like doing my homework, you know, it wasn't laziness. I got dismissed as being lazy, but, oh, my God, I'm so the least lazy person. I want to do things. But finishing things off and organising things in priority order and and sort of finishing a thing before you start the next thing is impossible and time blindness apparently is a thing and I've even been in the past to counsellors to try and understand why I can't be organised why I can't get to places on time why you know and and it's it's that it's ADHD so I think part of why I was always dismissed at school and the naughty one was just because I was chaotic you know now I mentioned political satire Mm something you were interested in from an early age yeah. and you finish school yeah you're working on it what time do you start writing political satire um, or, I think all uh, I can't remember not writing so when I was about seven or eight I, I wrote my first children's book it was all I ever wanted to what do what was the title um it was about a panda I can't remember what he did he had an adventure or something um I think my mum's really still got it but I used to write all the time constantly obsessively and it's the only thing I think, you know, I had any vague sort of talent in. You know, by default, I sort of did okay in English and languages, but everything else, I think I got something like 10% in a chemistry exam once, and that was for writing my name or something. So lots of other things where it was methodical and logical, hopeless. But things like writing and daydreaming and imagining worlds, 
that was my forte. So yeah. And were there any particular politicians you zoomed in on when you were doing your satire? Um, because of course. Of time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I was with um, a sort of puppet troupe, this is when Spitting Image was sort of long dead and buried. We kind of revived it in about probably 2014, 15, 16, around then. And I've got a very talented friend called Roger Todd who makes puppets and he made them every bit as brilliant as the original uh, Fluck and Law ones for Spitting Image. And he's just such a talented guy and he used to make them in his one bedroom, two bedroom flat in Walthamstow. And he was just such a genius, still is. And we would write, I would sort of be part of the team writing silly lines for people like Nigel Farage and Trump. And I remember once being on a tube not long before I was elected, I was in charge of um, holding the bag with the Nigel Farage body in it. And I just remember thinking, I wonder if I'll ever get to tell him that in real life if I go into <laughs> politics. But yeah, I don't think I ever would. I just yeah. have. <laughs> yeah. um, so that was really, really fun. We were making a pilot for a TV show and then the election got called the snap election. And I said, guys, do you mind if I just go off and do this thing and then come back and then accidentally I kind of got you know elected and I felt quite guilty actually um let's go let's uh, I suppose we'll go just before I suppose to that process mm-hmm. of the 2017 election uh, you worked you did fellow education teaching at what point did you decide you wanted to be a Labour politician or I suppose a politician I mean did Labour or politician come first um I joined the Labour Party in, I think, about 2013 because I was a single mum and I thought there was no way I could ever get to any meetings or anything. So my children were old enough for me to just throw a pizza in the, the microwave. I'm such a good mum. And I, then There's nothing beg, wrong with a microwave <laughs> pizza. beg my mum and dad to kind of come around and just sit with them while I ran behind my house to this place where the Labour Party had their meetings. But I'd had, I had no idea the Labour Party, no offence to anyone running it, but I didn't know we had a presence in Canterbury. I didn't really see anything about them reflected in the paper. We were a completely Tory county, county council, city council, everything. So I had to find them, look them all up online, find out where the meetings happened, contact the guy. And then eventually I went to a meeting and there were nine people in the room. And I thought, oh my gosh, I think we're going to have to do something about this. So I did. <laughs> and at that point, how does it work in the sense of when you go to be like the candidate for Canterbury? I mean, had you ever thought about being an MP? Um, yeah. You had a very keen interest in politics. Yeah, I mean, it was a fantasy thing. I'd thought that I would love to do it. I didn't know whether there were any single mums in Parliament even. I didn't see anyone talk about that or speak about that in debates or in interviews. And I so thought, thought, well... Yeah. Why shouldn't I get there? You know, isn't this the House of Commons? Common people, ordinary people should be there. And the more I got involved with the Labour Party as a delegate to conference and things, which, again, my CLP didn't really do because there were so few of us, and I became the branch chair of Canterbury, and I got students back involved, and we we did various things, and we grew our membership. I realised that a lot of MPs on both sides were from the same background they'd all sort of met at uni or joined a society at uni and most seemed to be sort of based in London and and I couldn't relate to a lot of what I read about them they were sort of they just seemed to all be from a really similar background and I, I know I do some colleagues at a service but that's how I felt at the time just looking in I couldn't see anyone that felt that they were like me or kind of juggling things and being a bit more ordinary and I thought, well, why hasn't anyone ever done anything about this? I just thought, you know, it's 
the 2010s. Why, why not? So why not give it a go? So the SNAP election happens. Yeah. And did you have a sense, you know, your time could come that quickly? No, you, you mentioned obviously not. just that example of, you know, you're doing this pub. <laughs> yeah, well, I was applying for jobs yeah, yeah. as well because you have to sort of stop work in order to... And I just stopped being a teaching assistant and decided to take a loan to do the comedy thing. And I thought, right, I'm giving myself six months to do that. Then the election happened. I thought, oh, God, what do I do? And at the time, this is, if I suppose, to take listeners back... The early indicators were not that Labour was going to do particularly well in that election, no, were they? No, not at all. Jeremy Corbyn, no. Theresa May, you know, like, I think it was suggesting, you she know, was strong Tory majority, yet very strong and stable for about two weeks. Mm. Um, but, you know, suggesting it was going to be a three-figure majority for the Tories. So yeah. you probably didn't... So I thought, this is a really safe practice and it will be my kind of five seconds of fame. I'll do this, then I'll go back to normal. And at the time, certainly towards the end, I was applying for jobs. I was applying for jobs everywhere, shops, anything. I just thought, oh my God, I'm going to run out of money. I was really panicking. Because it's expensive running to be an MP, isn't it? Yeah, well, just for me, the yeah. money was just, it was about not earning anything and living off this loan and thinking, what am I going to do? And knowing that that money was coming to an end. And yeah, I mean, you get people helping you sort of, the Labour Party helped pay for sort of things like leaflets and stuff and the CRP, so I didn't have to do any of that. But you have to kind of look OK and you have to also feed your children and, and all of that stuff. And I was in a bit of a panic about what, you know, it's great having this platform and, and running and having a go, but what the hell, after next week in June, I was thinking, I've got no income. So that was a real panic, actually. At what point in the campaign do you start to think I might actually do this? Because Canterbury, as I mentioned in the introduction, long time Tory. Never, ever been anything other than Tory. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't believe for a millisecond I was ever going to win. But a couple of weeks before the election, the polls had been steadily kind of in my favour. And there was a campaign called Canterbury is not conservative. And it was running mostly on Facebook and things. It was, it was encouraging people that wanted to not have a Tory MP anymore to vote tactically and now that's a really sort of buzzword thing that we all talk about but at the time it wasn't and I credit my now partner with that because he ran the campaign has got brilliant political instincts and I remember thinking oh this is nice I'll kind of get on board with that and at the but point did worked. you know him yeah, yeah we yeah, just yeah, met yeah, through yeah. this campaign but you know we were kind of friendly and with other people and you know and he was very nice and in fact we met at an anti-Brexit march in London but um but yeah he was running this campaign and people really got behind it and thought, well, if we want to end the sort of never-ending Tory just assumption that they're going to get back in in Canterbury, we've got to think outside the box. And it worked. But yeah, I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue. So you win on the night. Shock mm -hmm. is the right word? Yes, completely shock. I mean, literally, I was physically sick. I went to the lose. I started shaking and, and threw up. I, and just before the result, my campaign manager said to me, Rosie, he took me outside and he said, you know, have you written a speech about winning and losing? And I went, I haven't written any kind of speech. I didn't know that's what you do at these things. And I went, don't be ridiculous. And I just burst out laughing. He went, you need to prepare yourself. I think you might, it's possible that you'll win. And I just, I literally went to the lose. I went into some kind of shock. I just thought, this is insane, this isn't happening. Because I hadn't mentally prepared for it. You know, when you kind of have a dream scenario, I think it's meant to visualise it or something. I hadn't done you any hadn't even of got that. to that point. I hadn't pretended in my head <laughs> that it was going to happen, and then what do I do with children? It was just never going to happen. So, yeah. So, you enter Parliament, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we're now in almost a hung parliament territory mm. um, because Theresa May just about makes it over the line. Yeah. There's a deal with the DUP. Jeremy Corbyn is leader. How was it? 
completely weird and mad and I was I think I was in shock for several weeks because I remember going to an event I think it was UK music or something and as you go into these events you'll know there's a line of badges and you pick up your badge and you put it on and it said Rosie Duffield MP and I saw it written down this sounds mad but I thought oh my god I'm I'm an MP and it was yeah it was probably about six weeks in and I just remember sitting down and thinking, this actually happened, this thing. And that was really strange. It took me that long because you're on adrenaline the whole time. And because we were in the middle of all the Brexit votes and stuff, we were on adrenaline for two or three years, you know. So you don't really have time to think. And before I even... I had a phone ringing in a room and we don't, you don't know how to set your office up. You don't really... Perhaps now you do. I didn't really get guided through what to do, how you be an MP, you know, what that involves. And everyone else seemed to have an idea. And I thought, what do I do? And that was a bit scary. Now, you spoke in the past about the disproportionate hours in Parliament, Mm. you know, how it's tricky, I think, particularly if you have children, if you're a single parent household. So was that quite a tough learning curve initially? Absolutely, yeah, because my youngest was, I think, about 14 at the time. And he was still going to school and was kind of, he'd moved in mostly with his dad and was spending kind of half and half with both of us. So that was a lot of juggling. I suddenly thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? And my parents were great. And and yeah, he would, I think I did did an interview a few weeks ago where I just had to sort of admit to the world that I I would just chuck stuff in the microwave or let him loose with my Deliveroo account. And um, I mean, that's a dream for a child. It was, he was really happy all the time. But there was lots of sort of hanging around Parliament in the evenings and he was very, very good about it. And the oldest one sort of did more of his own thing. I mentioned in the introduction and obviously you always feel these podcasts that you never really do a whole career justice obviously because we you know limit finite amount of time but I mentioned the introduction obviously one of the things that has become a really big issue in parliament for which you've become very vocal is self-id yeah women's rights might Mm. be a better way to put it but I also was reading some previous interviews you've done and you said you know you didn't go into parliament thinking this was going to be your raison d'etre particularly no what did you think you were going to do and then how did it end up becoming what it has well there was kind of one thing I thought well you know representing single mums that was about as detailed as I got and then I thought the two-child limit which was something that just I found really abhorrent not that we have a limit on how many children you can claim benefit for I guess there has to be a limit on that but the way that that was written was that more than two children, you have to basically prove that if you want benefits, you've been raped. And that can only have been drawn up by my men. Uh, It still staggers me that that is a law in the UK in 2023. And I thought, I just want to stop that. I've been singularly, completely, spectacularly hopeless and haven't stopped that. And really disappointingly, Keir Starmer has recently said that he... I think he said very clearly on Laura Kunzberg, no, we won't stop that. He didn't say we're aiming towards stopping it or of course we all disagree with that policy. And that was profoundly disappointing. But but yeah, yeah along I mean, the Kira way... Yeah, and Rachel Reeves have said it, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, which is really, really disappointing. I'd love us to aim towards that or for us just to state that that is where we would want to go, but we haven't, unfortunately. But yeah, in terms of the self-ID and, and trans stuff, that wasn't really on my radar, actually. I had a few friends in LGBT Labour who were sort of trans activists because they were factionally on my side, and that's everything when you're a Labour MP. We can pretend in interviews that it isn't, but it's still 
everything. It's how we select candidates, whoever the leader is, it's which faction they're on and which faction is kind of overall in control. It's how you pick your allies, how you um, align yourself with CLPs throughout the country. Everything in the Labour Party, as I have lived and breathed these last six years, is about factions. And so I was friends with quite a few of the LGBT Labour people who weren't in the Corbyn faction. And some of them are trans, you know, not a huge amount. And that has obviously all gone very differently now in the last few years. What was the moment when you kind of spoke up? I mean, there's a very famous speech you gave, quite an emotional speech, um, which I think you won an award for it. I won the Spectator, Spectator Parliamentary, Parliamentary Speech yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is lovely. Which is how you come to your stance. But yeah. was that the, what would you say was the first point you kind of put your head above the parapet on the issue? Um, I think because I didn't really know how to kind of reveal that my opinions were going in a particular way. And Piers Morgan quote tweeted some health advice which said people with a cervix should go and get smear tests or something. And he mocked that and said, you mean women? And I thought, well, this is a quite funny way of just outing myself. It was a toe in the water. So I liked his tweet and all hell broke loose. So those factions that I wasn't a part of that monitored my every single like and follow and retweet and repost because they hated me from the sort of anti-Semitism era of Labour, they pounced on that immediately. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. immediately those same people pounced on that, retweeted it everywhere, called me all kinds of names. And that was that. And I did what everyone in that situation seems to do. First of all, you kind of panic, you write a great apology, and you try and sort of you know, save yourself, really, because you just know what lies ahead if you don't. And it wasn't fun, but I'm kind of glad that I haven't backed down because, you know, I found a a new load of people who really are grateful that I spoke up. And I mentioned that speech, and I, I think we'll put a clip into this of it, but it talked about, obviously, why you are so passionate about women's rights. Mm. And I wondered for listeners if you could just maybe touch on that slightly. Abuse isn't only about those noticeable physical signs. Sometimes there are no bruises. Abuse is very often all about control and power. It's about making themselves feel big or biggest. But that's not how abusers present themselves. It's not how they win your heart. It's not how they persuade you to meet them for a coffee, then go to a gig, then spend an evening snuggled up in front of a movie at at their place. When they ask you out, they don't present their age and they don't tell you that they like the idea of strong, independent, successful women, but not the reality. They don't threaten, criticise, control, yell or exert their physical strength in increasingly frightening ways. Not yet. I think... Yeah, I was at Labour Party conference in Brighton in 2019 and that was the year that we had to leave early because of prorogation and it was uh, that was all going on. And I knew that my ex-partner lived in the area, had moved to the area and I'd sort of off the cuff said to a couple of friends, oh, you know, let's hope he doesn't stalk me, but he did. And I was out at a restaurant with Stella and my best friend Anna McMorrin and... Uh, I saw this figure come into the restaurant. It was quite late at night. Our meal was ending, so nobody was going to come in to sit down for a meal. It was about 10. And I remember just knowing, without looking at him, that he'd walked in the restaurant. I just knew. 
and he went and stood by the specials board for a really long time. And I thought, he's deciding what to do. He's come in because I'm here, and he's deciding what to do. So I was facing away from him. I faced my friend and I said, I think he's come in. And she said, oh God, yes he has. Don't turn around. He came and stood right behind me. And I remember after I'd got over that, because it wasn't very lovely, but he did leave. I remember thinking, it was on the train back to London. I thought, I knew the domestic abuse bill was coming up. I've got to tell him I'm not afraid of him anymore. And I know he's potentially going to do that. And I know it's dangerous if I identify him. But I just thought, I've got to. I've got to speak in the domestic abuse bill. And I did. And you got very... Well, there was almost a... Was there a formation around you yeah, when you, when you did it of, really of your nice. colleagues who actually came out to support you, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd said to the speaker that I was going to make a personal-ish speech and that I might back down and would he mind calling me earlier than normal because in the status of things I was way down and I said, I won't do it. If I'm sitting here for hours, I won't be able to. So he was very, very kind to me and let me go, I think, after Theresa May or something extraordinary. So I kind of could get it out of the way. And I said to him, would you mind if I left straight away as well, if, I, if I'm struggling? He said no. And he said something terribly nice when I'd done the speech. And everyone was really lovely. I was overwhelmed. It was No one much had heard of me I think, before that. And it went round the world. And I had no idea that was going to happen. Not a clue. Now, when we, I suppose, think about, because obviously it starts from, you know, women's places, safe places for women. And yeah. then clearly when you hear opponents of this or people who are saying on you know, self-ID, trans, you know, yeah. they can say this is just um, an exaggeration or, you know, equal rights and so forth. Hmm. It feels sometimes in the House of Commons, I think one thing that's been quite interesting is it's almost as though, we can talk about Labour's position, but it's become a cross-party issue. Would yeah, you say it's absolutely. Fair? And... Are some of the probably more supportive or, you know, have you found support in MPs from different parties on, yeah, on this one? very much. I mean, my colleagues are terrified of speaking out in public about this issue. The ones that I know that are sort of in full agreement with me, I don't think anyone else would know their names. And most of them... In Within the, the Labour cabinet. Party. Yeah, yeah, most of them in the Shadow Cabinet or the front bench. And everyone's sort of, you know, I've become the kind of spokesperson for this. And the only person who, yeah, I mean, I'm never going to get on the front bench, let's put it that way. And um, so I've, I've kind of become the person who can speak freely about this stuff. And clearly my colleagues in the Shadow Cabinet and things don't feel that they can still because they don't. And uh, Do you get the sense from them privately that they're happy you are doing the speaking on it? Or? Um, I suspect so, yeah. because then they don't have to. Yeah, I mean, we used to be on a sort of secret WhatsApp group together, a few of us, and they will all come to the events that we hold in Parliament that are cross-party, but have to be a little bit private. And we have speakers and things who are really experienced and know about this area so yeah but cross party yeah there are no barriers I mean first of all when you get to parliament you're a woman actually that's it I'm the 487th woman ever to have been elected in the history of the UK parliament so first of all you gravitate towards women then there's a party divide sometimes but what people tend not to understand outside is that well you do because you're there but we all journalists and women MPs and staff we have women there first and we have that sort of 
kinship, I suppose. Yeah, I think we had Miriam Cates on this podcast and she was talking about how like she's got support from I think yeah, so she herself. I think I think Russ friends. one of your Labour colleagues, oh, yeah. Russell Lawnmore, I think at one point was heckling her quite yeah. a lot. Yeah, that was not yeah. a fun debate. Yeah. We were talking about the Scottish bill and yeah. People on my side were heckling me. Every time a woman stood up, you know, I don't know if there's, we could look back on this, but Jess Phillips and I were saying to each other, every time a woman stands up, so some of the men were saying the same things we did, but they weren't getting heckled in the same way, which was really interesting. And the people heckling were mostly from my side. I think they're yeah. all from my side, actually. Um, yeah. So that supportive messages to people like Miriam and Jenkins. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it's really important to me to sort of put out there that, People like Angela Richardson and, and Miriam Cates, we don't agree on anything else politically, actually. You know, things like Brexit and all kinds of things. But yet this really bonds us together, this need to fight for women's rights and women's single-sex spaces. And just a final thing, I suppose, on that is, um, do you think there is a left-right divide now when it comes to these debates? Or do you think it's a bit more... Because lots of people think being feminist is a, yeah. is a left huh. value, but... Do you think that's still the case? I think what's really interesting, and I was talking to Julie Bindle about this yesterday, and of course she's a woman who's been involved in the left and women's rights for decades now. I mean, there's always a joke amongst Labour women that all the old traditional trade unionists were quite sexist and that tradition was always quite sort of freezing women out. There's always been jokes about women being found the seats where they can't win rather than the safe seats. That's that's a long Labour tradition. If I was applying for my seat now, I don't know how that would go, but it was completely unwinnable, so I was left to get on with it. But the more high-profile winnable seats have traditionally women have been discouraged from going for those or, you know, it's not quite your time yet, dear, that kind of attitude. So it's very good to, you know, of course we're supposed to be progressive and inclusive and all of that stuff, you know, and the leader, the, the current leader and the leader, the general secretary will often say in interviews or at meetings, we've got 51% women MPs. That is not down to the men who've led the party in the last few decades or the people behind the scenes. That's down to the sheer determination of those women, all of whom now, all of the women in Parliament now, the ones who clung on to our seats against all the odds in the 2019 election to become 51% of Parliament. And it is incredibly hard as a woman in Parliament. So we haven't been done any favours. The Labour Party haven't gone, do you know what, we need 51%. You know, we had all women shortlist and that was brilliant but that's now come to an end so let's see what happens in the future so the party in a way still has a woman problem when it comes to some of these issues i feel like yeah all political parties do still have women problems but that doesn't exclude labor the party has changed its position slightly if you think of the national policy forum apparently so yeah (laughs) you say apparently (laughs) well i read the guardian article where annalisa dodds i think announced that we wouldn't now back self-id and it was something to do with this national policy forum but as a woman mp i didn't have anything to do with that i was never invited to give my opinion or speak to anyone about it i don't really know who goes to the national policy forum or how that works um if you see that in a labor manifest yeah, that well, will, that's that fantastic. Be that I'm going to be yeah. really thrilled about that. But um, to get to that I point. think people thought, I, I did the Today programme live when that was kind of announced. I think people thought I'd been in consultation with the leader or his office or, or someone. And But absolutely not. I read about it just like everyone else did. Because also when it comes to the leader's office, there was a story about a member of his team, I yeah. think, being quite dismissive of you. 
Yeah, as I understand it, briefings against troublesome MPs happen reasonably often. And uh, this guy, I think he's called the executive head of comms or something like that, who I've never met, didn't know anything about, uh, was called briefing against me on this particular occasion. And uh, yeah. Did you get an apology? No, no. I think somebody in uh, the leader's office offered, did I want to meet this guy? And I thought, why? We've never met before, so he can apologise. Basically, he was cool, wasn't he? I mean, we all know, all women MPs, all MPs, certainly the ones that are a bit naughty or a bit rebellious, know that this happens in Parliament. You get briefed against. Uh, So you might read a story about, you know, and I'm not talking about me here, I'm talking about other MPs. You might read a story suddenly about your personal life. And that's part of the game I'm learning in politics. It's a nasty, dirty, completely untransparent business. And I'm talking about all parties here. I feel the public should know a bit more about what happens. Where's Streeting apologised to you? He did, which was lovely. Yeah, yeah, that was nice. Because he spoke about it in a way that you used to be united on quite a lot. Yeah. So I it was mean, almost, was it yeah, a bit we sad almost when it became... Yeah, I mean, yeah. I a lot of the MPs, you know, particularly during Brexit, we would have sometimes three or four meetings a day about each particular amendment. There would be 150 of us who were all united against Brexit, probably more like 200, actually. So we were very close. And don't forget, you know, we had a sitting Saturday. We were there all night often. So we did all... We had to go through that together. It was a bloody difficult time. So, yeah, we were all close. Wes and I in particular, there was a sort of group of us who were very vocal about anti-Semitism in the party. And Wes was one of those. It was a really harrowing and difficult time and that bonded us very much so I think that was really good I felt nice about that final thing on that was just I mean so Wes has reached out to you yeah do you think obviously that offer for a coffee of a man who may be rude about you that can that can stay hanging not interested. but would you like to sit down with Keir Starmer or would you like to have dialogue um, with him I met with Keir once in 2021 just before conference to talk about this and I did tell him it was going to be an issue and of course it me and it dominated conference by me not being there which is the opposite of what I wanted it was kind of embarrassing actually so that was 2021 2022 there was some more of that and I think again the story dominated conference Um, and I went to a fringe meeting that got a lot of publicity and this year I'm going to go to conference with Labour Women's Declaration who again the Labour Party have decided are not allowed to have a stall in the main conference hall. We have hundreds of stalls, corporates and energy companies and charities and affiliates of Labour like socialist societies like LGBT Labour and Jewish Labour Movement and the Palestine Solidarity Campaign and all those kinds of places. I mean I've been some interesting ones over the years. (laughs) Yep and Labour Women's Declaration are not allowed to have a stall so it looks like we've changed and we've got this new policy but Labour Women's Declaration are about 8,000 women who've signed a pledge saying that they're against self-ID that's basically what our kind of mission statement is and various other things about protecting women's spaces we're not allowed we're banned by the Labour Party so what are you going to do? I'm going to go to their fringe meetings and speak up but they have to be kept in secret venues and we have to have security and that won't change this year you can try and get Keir to one. Uh, I think that's incredibly unlikely. <laughs> yeah. Send the invite. Maybe. <laughs>
Um, well, you beat me to it because I was going to ask if you're going to go to Labour Conference this year because I know yeah. there's been security. Yeah, I mean, there still yeah. will be security yeah. issues. There's security issues for all women MPs, I have to say, and, yeah. and probably others as well. But but particularly over this, the last meeting we had was at a women's centre and we had to have, I had to be sneaked into the back entrance because there were people in balaclavas at the front and stuff. And that's just part of life for me now. So <laughs> I'm used to it. It's crazy. <laughs> You mentioned Brexit mm-hmm. and obviously working closely with Worth Streeting back in the day. Obviously, yeah. we've had a series where we've had born again Brexiteers in the shadow oh, yeah. cabinet. Oh, yeah. But it feels as though we're speaking quite soon after, you know, Keir Starmer in Paris. Mm-hmm. Keir Starmer giving an interview to the Financial Times saying he wants to renegotiate that Brexit deal. Yeah. Are you encouraged? You would like him to see him go a bit further because currently oh, he's yeah. a customs union single market Absolutely. not moving yeah I mean for me and my particular constituency I think I'm always going to have to be a lone voice because obviously we're nearer to the continent than we are up north so yeah. I think my constituency my bit of Kent not other bits of Kent like Dover and Thanet but my bit of Kent it's a university town and we have incredibly strong links for the continent so I almost have to kind of operate independently on that and my constituents on the whole still really want that full membership of the EU so I understand that Keir obviously we're chasing those red wall seats back that's his number one primary focus he's made that clear from the beginning he's not going to go as far as I and my constituents want but anything is better for me than the current situation and I suppose with that gender self-idea see what's in the manifesto and also some of the warmer words on Europe do you you feel as though I suppose the Labour Party is moving back to you a bit I don't know I suppose possibly but again I mean I'm not part of that it just seems to happen that they've recognised where public opinion is and I would have thought I mean I did think that part of being an MP is to have really finely honed political instincts. That is probably, I would say, my greatest strength as an MP. And that's not difficult to do. You just have to meet with your constituents all the time, regularly, and read your correspondence, because that's telling you, if you're going completely in the wrong direction, you know, if I jarred, my opinions jarred with everyone in my constituency, I'd know about it straight away. So... I guess we're finally recognising where people are on certain issues and that's good, it's about time. Because at the same time, I suppose, the position might be moving. You've got things such as, you know, uh, the General Medical Council deleting yeah. women and mother from forms. Yeah. So it feels there's still quite a lot to be to one in terms of the general Yeah, argument. and women will not stop campaigning until those ridiculous nonsense things are done, over and done with. Um, this country is made up mostly of women. Most people in this country are women, which means most voters, most users of the NHS, most political campaigners and people who spend money all of whom are women because, you know, there are more of us, that's it. So I don't understand, and nor do women I speak to, why the GMC and the NHS in particular are pandering to pressure groups who want this. Trans people I know don't want to erase women from language and and take over our spaces. There are a few, a tiny amount of loud men activists, and I don't think they should be pandered to. Um, now, final question we ask every episode, but I'm particularly looking forward to your answer because I feel like you've given quite a lot of this, maybe, <laughs> um, which is, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? There's so much. I think politically it was things like, vote for this deal and your constituents will understand 
no, 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 no. So I didn't. I abstained from the Brexit deal because I know my constituents and my constituency. So please don't tell me how that how they are, especially if you've never been to Kent in your life, which most Labour MPs haven't. But on a more fun note, I was. Uh, you get a lot of mansplaining in this job. It's all meant with absolute kindness. We get people who want surgeries to tell you how to reform the NHS, for example, and. I'm never going to be in the position to do that, I don't expect. But, you know, you get people who basically come and mansplain at your surgeries. Me and my office manager have lots of laughs about that because otherwise you go mad. Um, but one particular guy when I was campaigning in the 2019 election told me to stand at the street stall and what I absolutely must make sure I do was shake hands with everyone. He then went on to tell me the psychological connections about shaking hands and, and touching people. I mean... It's polite. Women shake hands when they're talking to people, but particularly MPs. But it just it still amuses me just remembering that long explanation about why I should be shaking hands with my constituents. I won't forget that one in a hurry. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you for your time today.